Elk camp is something you learn the hard way. You have to earn it. And it's not earned easily, especially when it requires the killing of a massive ungulate, chopping said ungulate into manageable pieces and hiking the remains of the beast out of some remote and godless valley in eastern Oregon. My father-in-law hunts the Ukiah unit every year. He hunts a series of ridges and deep valleys which are recovering from an old burn. And the hunting was good in the years after the burn, but the spring growth bursting out of the charred earth now hides the big elk. I wouldn't know any of this by choice. It's not that I don't like hunting. I do. I skip many days of my junior and senior years in high school to go jump shooting for duck and pheasant along the irrigation ditches of rural Marion County. It was never hard to round up a buddy to walk a hedge line looking for a fat rooster or a big drake hiding out in a wide spot along a drainage ditch. I'm a social hunter. Like with fishing, it's inconceivable that I would be out in the great outdoors by myself. Unless, of course, I was hopelessly lost or had fallen out of an airplane and somehow survived. So it was with great trepidation that I accepted my father-in-law's invitation to elk camp in the early years of my marriage to his daughter. How bad can it be, I thought to myself, ten or twelve guys out in the woods for a week with guns and beer and one visit to a shower midweek? It's just a fall rendition of a summer camping trip, I thought. We met on a Friday evening before we were to take off for elk camp. My father-in-law was going to lend me a rifle, and we were all supposed to meet up on an old logging road to sight them in. Many elk hunters use a 30 6 as the preferred rifle for hunting big game. The venerable old rifles can put a slug in the massive heart of a big elk and drop it instantly, but once in a while, even with their hearts split in four, they'll run 20 miles after the shot on nothing more than adrenaline. To avoid chasing an elk for 20 miles over ridges and valleys, my father-in-law uses something just a bit bigger. When he married his first wife, he had three custom rifles made. They were 7mm, and this is all I know of them. The 7mm offers better ballistics than 30-06 Springfield with bullet weights of 175 grains and less. The most popular load, of course, is a 160-grain Spitzer loaded to 3,000 feet per second. This is because both the higher muzzle velocity of the 7mm compared to the 30-06 and that the .284 diameter bullets tend to have better ballistic coefficients than the .308 diameter bullets of comparable mass. And that's all you need to know. The first time I fired my loner, I aimed it off at a tin can just over 100 yards away on a logged hillside. A puff of dirt kicked up about three feet to the right of the can. I knew enough to pull my shot left just a little the next time. But my next shot sailed high. My third shot shook the can as the slug buried itself in a tree stump below it. There's a lot of adrenaline involved in shooting a rifle like that. When the others fired their 30-06s, they had a high crashing sound, while our 7mm sounded like a cannon by comparison. One was a bang, and one was a boom. I left for elk camp on Sunday. My father-in-law and my brother-in-law went up together to set up the canvas tents complete with a big cast iron stove that you could cook on. I think that cooking surface on that camp stove was bigger than the one in our small apartment kitchen. When I arrived, there was just enough daylight left for them to show me the makeshift toilet, which consisted of a hole in the ground around which were stacked logs with a toilet seat tied on top of them. For privacy, the men attached a blue tarp around the toilet, which made the already cold toilet seat feel like you were sitting on an iceberg. I set up my sleeping bag and joined the others in the big tent. Dinner was hot dogs, beans, and chips, and everyone sat around playing cards or chatting until about 9 p.m., when the oldest guys shuffled off to their cots. A few of the younger guys stayed up drinking for another hour or so. 
The stove ticked and pinged all night as it expanded with a fresh load of logs. I remember going to bed nervous about the hunt. I had no clue how to hunt, where to aim, or how to even know where to look. My father-in-law said I could hang out with him for a bit. But elk hunting is a solitary game, until it's not, if you're lucky. I woke up to find my brother-in-law and father-in-law dressing in woolen pants and flannel shirts over long underwear. I had the same gear, hastily purchased in an army supply store the week before. I looked like a shabby Dust Bowl survivor when I put it all on. I crawled out of bed and pulled on the long underwear in spite of the high temperatures inside the tent. I should have gone to the bathroom before getting all dressed up. There are a lot of layers in elk camp. No one ate breakfast. They just packed sandwiches and tossed a bag of chips and Mountain Dew in their backpacks before we drove several miles down the highway to the trailhead. The hike in was just over an hour. It was all uphill until you reached the overlook, which slowly wound its way back downhill to the valley floor. From there, you could spread out into three or four different valleys. Everyone was hoping for snow, as it would drive the big bulls and their herds down from the higher elevations and into the valleys we were hunting. I was just hoping for some sun to warm my frozen fingers. By the time we got to the top of the ridge, everyone had gone their own direction. My father-in-law was heading toward a rock everyone called Ken's Rock. He'd shot an elk near that rock several years before, and it was his favorite place to sit and listen. My father-in-law is part Native American. Somewhere in that California by way of Nebraska and finally Oregon upbringing, he retained a bit of an ability to communicate with nature. And for the few hours he let me spend with him, I thought maybe he was more of a shaman, not just a quarter native. He told me about several of his best shots and the massive bulls he dropped with them. He explained how sometimes if you stop and become very still and quiet, you can smell the elk coming toward you. They're like giant billy goats in a way. The bulls piss themselves like crazy during mating season, which seems to have the opposite effect that it might for humans. There was freshly fallen snow, which was a good sign, and we goofed around in it for a while. My father-in-law found his favorite rock, and he took his gun off his shoulder and put it down on his knee, and he lit a cigarette, which is only okay to do when you're hunting if you're part native and you can sense the big bulls in the forest. We talked a bit, but I could tell he was tired of me already. He told me he'd walk me to the fork where the trail went down into the valley along the river. He told me the water was so clean down there I could drink it. Never mind the elk piss, I thought. But suddenly he tensed up. I watched him slide his rifle off his shoulder and push the safety forward. I listened, but I heard nothing. I watched him for clues, but I just attributed it to the fact that his people had lived and hunted here a lot longer than mine had. Then he told me to get behind a tree, which I did. I suddenly had visions of predator running through my mind, and I slid my rifle off my shoulder. My father-in-law just looked at me and grunted. Just watch me, he whispered. For a long time, he didn't move. Then he looked down the trail a bit, made a sign as if I should watch the trail. Soon, the chilly air was full of all kinds of heavy, nasty, musty smells. Three big cow elk came sauntering up the trail and right past us. Don't have to look for elk. You can smell them, he said in his gravelly papa voice. We waited around to see if bulls were lurking around behind the cows, as they sometimes do, but there was no more smell, just the snow and the faintly toasted smell of the ground we kicked up around us. And then he left me alone, out in the great wide open with no idea what to do if I happened to cross the path of a big bull, or worse, a bear or a mountain lion. No, he sent me off into the world in the way that dads often do. Just a wave, a nod, an admonishment to be back at this fork before dark. I could tell he wanted to hunt alone, that he had waited for this moment all year, 
And as a guy, I totally understood it, somewhere deep down. But my modern paranoia about being alone in the wilderness just overwhelmed me. I got to the bottom of the ravine, and panic really started to set in. The first thing I did was to find a stretch of river that ran over gravel for at least 10 feet, because he told me that these were the best places to drink from. The gravel cleans the water that runs over it. I drank deeply of the mountain stream, its cold revival somehow making me think that I could survive being less than a mile from another human being for longer than an hour or two. After that, I walked up the stream and enjoyed a beam of sunlight that fell down on the trickling water for a while. I don't know how long I walked, but I managed to cover some distance uphill. My sore legs were enough proof of that, so I sat down on a rock, rested the rifle carefully against my leg, and listened to the water. If this isn't enough evidence that I wasn't born to hunt big game, I don't know what is. I suppose I could do it if my life depended on it, but I saw that those guys had packed in the coolers, and I knew I would not starve. Not unless I got lost out here. That was when I heard it. A boom that echoed for a full minute. I had heard 30-06 crashes throughout the day, but I knew the sound of a 7mm by now. I walked down the cliff toward where I thought I heard the sound emanate from, but there were only echoes. In one of the echoes, I thought I heard my father-in-law's voice, but I couldn't be sure. I looked upstream and downstream, and I saw nothing, and I heard nothing more than the wind. But then I heard the voice again. It's unmistakable. A deep, smoky, false bass with little humanity left in it for the years of smoking. But a lot of warmth remained. I looked up and saw him a hundred feet above my head at the top of the cliff. He was kneeling down, his rifle resting on his foot as he smoked a cigarette. That's Jeff, he said, indicating that the shot we heard fired was from my brother-in-law's gun. If I learned nothing else that week, I definitely learned to distinguish between the sound of a .30-06 and a 7mm. He's over in them trees, he said, pointing to a distant spot, at least a mile and a half from where we stood. You head up on that draw and I'll get some of the other guys and catch up with you, he told me. I knew enough to follow his line of sight around the ridge and up the shoulder of the next hill. Beyond that, I had no idea how I was going to find Jeff. But I was just jazzed to see another human being after nearly six years. But I was just jazzed to see another human being after nearly six hours without seeing one. I felt revived and ready to go again. But I had no idea what the night of work ahead of me would entail. I walked and walked and walked the hillside. I didn't go up because the forest grew thicker every ten feet you went up the hill. I stayed down in a small ravine where there was less light and less undergrowth. Finally, I could hear sawing in the distance and the grunts of heavy work. I increased my pace until I stood at the base of the hill and started yelling. Jeff, where are you? I yelled, my hands cupped over my mouth to increase the sound. I'm up here, I heard him say, just stringing him up. I started up the hillside and finally found him hanging a large chunk of a spike elk in a tree. The rest of the beast's body was divided in four sections. We'll huff this stuff out tonight, he said, and come back in the morning for the rest of it. Jeff shot the first elk of the trip, a rather large spike with a good proportion of meat to antler ratio. We waited for the others to join us and spit our tobacco out in the darkening forest or chewed on beef jerky warmed up in our pockets after hours of hiking. We buried everything else except the chunks we were planning on carrying out that night, and as the evening wore on I realized how hungry I was. By the time the other guys arrived, Jeff was anxious to get the meat out of the area so as not to attract anything that might try to get at the hanging remains or dig up the stuff we had buried. Someone handed a board to me and told me to strap a front quarter on it. My father-in-law did it for me and then secured it to my back. I suddenly felt a hundred pounds heavier, and I hadn't picked up my rifle yet. 
The slog out was tough, among the toughest walks I've ever done. It was pitch black, cold, and I had 80 pounds of elk meat strapped to my back. We walked for what seemed like hours. None of the terrain was familiar in the blackness of an eastern Oregon night. There was no moon to guide us, just the trickle of the stream until we reached the fork that would take us up the ridge. We stopped there for a while and argued about whether to follow the stream out, which would be easier on the guys hauling the meat, or to follow the ridge, which would take us directly to our cars. Eventually, we decided to follow the stream, for which I was extremely grateful. It was all downhill, and I found the sound of the flowing water to be reassuring, even in the presence of six guys with rifles and plenty of ammunition. When we arrived at the trucks, the moon was well up in the sky, and I was cold, hungry, and ready to pass out. My back had become one with the meat-laden board. By the time they helped me take it off, I felt like it was part of me, and it felt strange to lose 60 pounds of myself all at once. The stink of working men who hadn't showered the week before elk camp and who were covered in elk entrails and who wore the musky smell of bull elk piss immediately filled the cabs of the trucks. And I wouldn't forget that smell for a long time, though I would become quite used to it by the end of elk camp. When we pulled into the dark, cold camp, someone fired each of the stoves up and the confines of the canvas tents warmed very quickly. Someone else threw the elk heart and liver into a frying pan with some onions. My lockdown senses started to wake up at the smells and the comfort of camp. I hadn't talked to anyone most of the day, and even when we were all together hauling out the elk meat, no one said much, but Jeff told the story of how he spotted the spike, a bull with just two tines instead of a full rack, come out between two trees for a perfect side shot. He couldn't tell if it was really a spike. No one had tags for a bull or antlerless, so we were all gunning for spikes. Jeff waited until it moved, just a hair to the left, and revealed clean spikes. He squeezed the trigger, and the bull took the shot straight through the lungs, which is almost always fatal within a few minutes. It takes a lot of oxygen to power that big elk heart. My father-in-law described it well. He didn't know what happened, he said, of the elk. It just feels something is not right, so it walks a little forward. It can't catch his breath, so it lays down to conserve some energy, and you wait. You don't bother it. You just wait, quietly. Then the lack of oxygen or the blood loss makes him pass out. But you don't want to startle an elk because they can produce enough adrenaline to run with a busted heart or a bullet through one lung. But not two lungs, he said. This guy, he died within ten minutes. Jeff confirmed the story and we all sat and imagined ourselves taking the same shot at an elk of our own. We all ate a portion of the elk heart and liver and it tasted so good. I thought maybe I had never really tasted meat until then. To this day, I've never tasted anything quite like it. We cleaned up our mess, dropped off our hunting clothes. We cleaned up our mess, dropped out of our hunting clothes, and fell off to sleep for what seemed like five minutes before I heard my father-in-law again stirring up the coals in the stove so he could make a thermos of coffee. Jeff slept soundly, and I realized that my father-in-law was kicking me and telling me to be quiet so Jeff could sleep. The perks of elk camp, he said. When you get an elk on opening day, you get to spend the whole week enjoying camp, playing cards and drinking beer. It's a club of sorts, and everyone yearns to participate, hopefully earlier in the week than later. I was immediately jealous, and not just for the fact that staying in bed and waking up to make bacon and eggs and sitting around reading books in old camp chairs around the fire sounded so good. I didn't really have any desire to go back out in that wilderness. I had seen elk, I had even heard a shot, watched a man butcher an elk and helped pack it out. I ate its heart for Pete's sake. It felt like I experienced the hunt, and who was I kidding? If I had a chance to shoot a big elk, I'd take it, but the likelihood of me actually finding that sweet spot between the shoulder blade and the first rib was slim indeed. 
but I roused myself, not wanting to offend my father-in-law, who took this stuff seriously. It felt strangely lonelier out there without Jeff. He and I are just a few years apart, and we've known each other since third grade. The walk-in was familiar by now. Even though we were doing it in the dark at the turnoff to Ken's Rock, which is what we called the place where my father-in-law liked to start off his day, waiting for some ghost bull that he shot years ago, he turned to me and told me to meet him back here at 5 p.m., unless we heard shots and were needed to help haul meat. I was filled with terror again, more so for the fact that the sun had not come up yet and the forest was silent and full of threat. I walked ahead a bit, but did not take the trail down into the valley. I walked to the rim where I had spotted Ken the afternoon before we heard Jeff shot. I watched the moon set and waited for the light to get brighter in the east where the hills were lower. There was a good hour or so where I studied the rifle in my hand like it was holy scripture. I studied the way the grain on the stock lay in the blue steel barrel. I played with the mechanics of it as quietly as I could, and then I put a bullet back in the chamber and checked the safety. I slung it over my shoulder and decided I needed to walk around to warm up a bit. I walked back along the ridge line, making sure to stay away from the view around Ken's Rock. I didn't want him to think I was afraid to go off by myself. For the next three hours, I tried to remember everything I was taught about hunting. I found a place with a view near where elk might go to water at midday when the weather warmed up enough. I looked for broken branches on trees and muddy spots near the stream. Finding one, I went back into the trees and found myself a rock from which I could lay down with a clean shot out at the creek if elk walked out in the open. It felt like hours there lying on my belly, but it was only about 45 minutes until I felt uncomfortable enough and needed to walk around again. I decided to explore and I started talking to myself, reciting some silly idea for a novel I had come up with a few years before then. I actually acted out the dialogues, and by early afternoon, I had completely forgotten about hunting. There was a nice spot in a glade off the main stream where a sunbeam fell in the late afternoon, so I sat down, stowed my rifle up against a rock, and proceeded to write down some of that dialogue in a notebook. And finally, I felt like I was going crazy. I was so tired of not seeing another human being. I had looked at rocks, trees, sky, water, and dirt all day, and I was lonely. I just wanted to go find somebody to talk to. I would have even given up talking to people just to be in someone's presence. That's how bad it was. It was only 4 p.m. I had an hour to go, and I was pretty sure I only had about 45-minute walk back up the trail, and I hadn't heard a single shot all day. Suddenly, I heard a commotion above me. The branches of the trees on the cliff above me rustled loudly. I grabbed the rifle, left my pack, and walked out to where I could look up and see the top of the cliff. Sure enough, I saw an elk. Not just one elk, but three big elk. The adrenaline surged in me and I couldn't stop shaking at the excitement of it all. I quickly raised the rifle and fingered the safety off. The first elk came out into the open at an incredibly high angle, but I could brace myself against a river rock if need be. I looked through the lens and couldn't find anything but pine branches. I scanned left and right, but there was only green. The first elk was a cow, but I had barely found a tuft of that blonde brown hide before it disappeared again. I waited for the second elk to emerge behind the first one. As soon as it did, I found that spot between the ribs and the leg, and I pressed my finger to the cold trigger. I braced myself as well as I could, and I tried to anticipate what was sure to be a powerful kick to the top of my shoulder. Just then, I remembered to look up to identify whether it was a spike or a full bull. Nothing. No antlers. It was a cow, and it quickly disappeared into the brush like the other one. The third elk was about to emerge, so I drew a bead on it, but before I could even get set, I realized it too was a cow. 
I just stood there and waited, hoping that a bull might come through after a bit of time had passed. But nothing else moved. No gunshots, just the sound of wind and the rustling of leaves and the gurgle of the brook. It was deflating, and I was lonelier for not being able to share that moment with someone else. I packed up my belongings and walked up to the trail to the spot where Ken had told me to meet him. He was there, smoking and leaning on a small tree. Did you see those three elk? he asked, before I could tell him. Yeah, I sighted in on all three of them, hoping one was a spike, I said. That's about all, he said, and we turned around and walked out to our truck, the first two to do so. He wanted to help Jeff with the meat a little while it was still light. I was just glad to be around a person, even someone as quiet as my father-in-law can be. By the third day of elk camp, there were four heads in the trailer and a lot of meat laying around. This was the year for the young guys, apparently. On the fourth day of elk camp, I chose to stay in camp instead of going out on the trail again. I had memorized the parts of the woods where I hunted, and I found myself longing for the unexpected nature of interacting with humans. I knew I probably disappointed my father-in-law, but the desire for human companionship outweighed any primal urges to shoot large creatures and provide meat for my family. I had helped carry an elk out through the woods, and for that, I was entitled to a little bit of meat of my own. So I slept in long after my father-in-law left for the woods that fourth morning. Maybe I played sick. Maybe he just knew I didn't want to go. But then I got up and ate some bacon and eggs that Jeff had cooked. We played cards and drank beer, and I was happy again. I've never been invited back to elk camp, though that's probably more so because I haven't lived in Oregon for many years now. But I love the stories, and when my father-in-law tells them these days, I know every place he talks about. I know the sound of the stream and the way the cold wind comes up the valley in the late afternoons. And even though I'm a people person and not the great white hunter, I'm thankful that I experienced elk camp. And I'm grateful for a father-in-law who pushes me to try something new, and yet as old as time itself. Now, as a man who's getting older himself, I find myself thinking back to those valleys and ridges from time to time. Time does change you, because lately, I've had dreams of donning woolen clothes, slinging a rifle over my shoulder, and going off into the woods with no more companionship than my own thoughts. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I'd like to wish all you dads out there a happy Father's Day. To my own dad, Al Akimov, the greatest man I'll ever know. And to my father-in-law, Ken Carpenter, well, as father-in-laws go, you're more than I could have ever hoped for. Music, as always, by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Next week's podcast will feature stories from our road trip across America. Tune in next Saturday. As always, thank you for listening.